Morning, everyone. Are you well? I'd like to give a special good morning to those of you sitting out in the garage door room. I know no one can hear you respond, but I'm sure you're uh, all clapping for yourselves out there. Enjoy the unlimited amount of cookies and the unlimited amount of coffee. Thank you for keeping your noisy family out of here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, welcome to Crossers. If you're new, uh, I hope, I, my name is Dan Mike. I hope uh, you find a place here to worship and pray and think um, amongst this group of rapscallions. I have prepared some thoughts and challenges for you from Matthew chapter 6. If you would turn there. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is a one of five major discourses in the book of Matthew. In, the, in this speech that Jesus gives, he lays out what a biblical lifestyle could look like. He casts vision for what life lived under the rule and the reign of the king, of the rule of God, would look like. And the more I study this, the more I take this seriously and just impress it and pray through it and get it in my life, the more inspiring I see and challenging I see these words. I don't know how I missed this. Most of my life, I honestly haven't spent really taking this vision seriously. It's beautiful. Even the way it's done is beautiful. I mean, it's not like the king here is way up high in some tower speaking this uh, tyrannical word for begging for allegiance and obedience from the commonwealth below. He's sitting out in a field, surrounded by the poor, the lame, the needy, surrounded by a ragtag group of disciples composed of a couple terrorists, a government employee, <coughs> I don't know how that works, and a handful of fishermen. And through this vision cast to them and through the things that he said to them and the way he lived his life, he then, they went on to change the world. Living the way that he says to live and following him is a very powerful, powerful thing. He takes power and dismantles it through humility. And then once he gets power and authority, he then just gives it away. He gives it to people and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given now to you. And then he backs away and says, you are now my representation. All my reputation, all my message is going to go on to you. You've got this now. And through his vision and his empowerment, we see over the centuries the impossible becoming possible. And when that happens in the lives of normal people, there's this magnetic, radiant, brilliant hope that's displayed for people who are in despair. When the unhappenable happens, when we have uh, the ability through Christ to look at someone who by all accounts should not be forgiven and forgive. It's brilliant and radiant when we, when we see someone who by all accounts uh, through the kingdom of this world should not be lovable, and then we find a way, and the power of Christ comes out of us to love them. It changes the world. 
I truly do see the vision here as a, as, as a way for not just a new reformed religion or a political uh, act uh, of, of, of a revolution, but a vision for humanity to be what it was meant to be. And I don't know how long that's going to last, but I am really enjoying it. And I have a suspicion that this, that this word is going to continue to thrive for people who have ears to hear. And so if that's you today, let's take a look at our next uh, passage. And please stand with me for the reading. Chapter 6, starting at verse 19 to the end. Okay. The words of Christ. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, or if you have a good eye, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is a bad eye, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Therefore, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or your body, or what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds. They don't sow or reap or store away and have barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God closes the, closes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? People who don't know God worry about these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. So seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. Amen. I'd like to remind you of a parable that Jesus spoke of a guy who's walking uh, through, he's on a journey. I like to imagine him with a walking staff and he's trying to take a shortcut through. It looks like an abandoned field and it's a little off camber. The, the dirt's kind of shifty beneath him and so he uses his uh, trekking pole to stick down in the dirt to, uh, to get uh, his balance. And then he hits something. So he stops and starts to dig down and uncover a box happens to be full of money. From the looks of things, this has been kind of uh, here for a long time. It's kind of an old vintage type of money. And so he starts to think, I can't carry this home, but 
Also, it would be kind of poor form for me to just take this. I don't even know whose land this is. So he goes and investigates and finds the land's for sale. It's a beautiful view near some water. It's a little pricey, but he knows there's something here that's of extreme value. And so gladly figures out everything that he has, everything that he worked for, everything that he ever had, he sold it to buy this piece of property and to get this treasure. I always wonder what happens next. There's no next part of the parable. Is, is this guy ruined by having this uh, wealth? I mean, is this a prince and a pauper kind of thing? Is it, or does he become generous? How does, how does the story end? Which I guess isn't the point. The point is, how do we get to a point where our heart sees the treasure and then looks at everything else as a means to an end to get there? circle back to this in a moment. Matthew 6 is continuing on a theme developing throughout Jesus' speech. One where which we see the kingdom of God, though it affects the external, though it is something that is uh, full of outside, uh, you know, effect, is not primarily sourced from the external. No one can look around and say, there's the kingdom, here's the kingdom. The kingdom of God comes from within. And if the kingdom of God comes from within, then our judge and our king and our Lord is extremely concerned about the why behind the what. What is the reason behind the external things? Where does that external uh, thing come from? For example, what Rod shared about last week. Why do you look like that when you fast? What is the reason for looking in this way uh, when you're trying to do something that should be just between you and God? Why do we pray with these type of prayers and all these words? And, and why does it look like that? Why are you doing the prayer the way you're doing it? Why is it that you worship the way you worship? Why do you give the way you give? What's the... the, the uh, motivation behind these acts of worship? Why do we use our money the way we use our money? This is something uh, that I want to continue to develop here is this theme of inside uh, first. And so I'd like to just put verse 21 at your feet and just... Uh, let you just pray about this and discern what does it mean when he says where your treasure is there your heart will be also where is your heart what are you treasuring how can we sync up with what God is treasuring and how can we have our heart break and love and have joy for the same things God's heart breaks and, and loves for and has joy in One of the major themes that starts to unfold uh, with where our treasure is, is actually to do with just treasure. So he starts to say things like, don't store up for yourselves treasures in earth, but store up treasures in heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean to say the eye is the lamp of the body? What are we talking about? How does this have to do with worry? Well, I have a few thoughts on this. I'd like to... uh, 
just sort of throw out there. You could chew on it, pray about it. Let's start with uh, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. A very humbling thing for me to experience, and I'm thinking maybe you can identify with this, is when you realize that there are things in the Bible that you don't know what it means. I, I grew up in Sunday school, and my, my dad's a preacher, and, I, and I'm in the youth group, and I go to the Christian school, and you, there's a pressure that preachers' kids have sometimes to be able to have profound thoughts about things and answer questions. When no one else in the youth group has an answer, they look at you, and they're like, what do you think? You got to make something up, you know, and you just start... <laughs> thinking this is how it works. I can just look. This is an English text. I'm fluent in English. I can figure this out. (laughs) The eye is the lamp of the body. What do you think this means, Dan? Uh, So embarrassing. Will and I, and I think Greg, like 10 or 12 years ago, were talking about this verse, and I did that. I, I just made something up, and I I started thinking about, and my example was Tyler Howell. I don't know if Tyler Howell is here right now, if any of you know him, but I, I was like, look at his eyes. They're so blue, and they're so pure, and just you can tell he's a Christian just by looking at him. <laughs> it's, it's obvious. That's what this verse is talking about. Then you start to play it out a little bit more, and you think, well, my eyes aren't that good. And so I... <laughs> Everybody knows you can't, I can't see very far, and what does that mean about my faith? I don't know. So there's a proverb that uh, stands, that this uh, leans on, and I was turned, my eyes were turned to this through a book by a guy that I look up to named David Biven. It's called Understanding the Difficult Words of Jesus, and he has a chapter on this uh, specific verse where he says that there's a proverb, Proverbs 22, uh, 9, you might be familiar with this, says that the, uh, a good eye, he who has a good eye shares his bread with the poor. Some translations just say, a beautiful eye. Some translations don't even try. And it's just like, blessed is he who uh, gives to the poor. You know? and so, but if you look at the, the Hebrew text there, it's actually pretty simple. Ayin tov, it's just a good eye. That phrase started to become uh, slang and was used as an idiom at the time of Christ, where if you had a good eye, you were a generous person. And then the negative started to become also slang as well. If you had a bad eye, you're stingy. We don't go around saying who has a good eye and has a bad eye. We just say, oh, Mr. Bah Humbug, or, you know, this guy's a real Scrooge McDuck or something like that. But in their day, it's the same way of saying this guy has a good eye and this guy has a bad eye. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is I can tell a lot about a man but if he's stingy or not. The focus on what people do with their money, how the money is infected by your faith, I cannot overstate enough the significance of this in the time of Christ. This conversation was not as compartmentalized as it can be in our culture. It's the type of money you use can have sin 
or not sin attached to it. It's how you use your money. I mean, starting even just in Leviticus, the cutting of the edges of your field in a way to to serve the poor. Uh, They're inundated with this integrated um, experience with money that has to do with the working out of your faith. What about Sabbath and, and saying no to making money and sharing? What about the year of Jubilee where we let go of debts and we are uh, letting go of our land and telling people you're not our slaves and telling our land you're not our slave? And how do we use our money in a way that promotes this? And this conversation continues and continues to start to figure out, uh, even by the time of Christ, the word righteousness, as you can see in 6 verse 1, is synonymous at times with giving to the poor. Be careful not to practice your act of righteousness before others to be seen by them. Verse two, but when you give to the needy, without skipping a beat, the connection is made from, to, from alms to righteousness. This act of benevolence, this generous a heart that is giving of things in a pure way to the needy is a central focus and not for nothing. I think talking about money or checking our hearts on money is a very healthy thing to do because you don't have to have a lot of money to be stingy. Do you have a good eye? Do you have a bad eye? I remember one time I, uh, my sister used to live with us few years ago, um, and she was uh, not feeling well, it was getting kind of late at night, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go get you some ginger ale. So I walked down to uh, this Shell gas station on Leonard and Alpine, and at this time of night, the way that this gas station works is um, you have to you have to make interactions through a glass door and all, you know, whatever. So I go up to the clerk, and I'm like, can I please have a two liter of ginger ale? And he said, okay, I'll be right back. But this man walks up to me and he says, excuse me, sir, I'm homeless. I need some money. Can you spare any money? Well, I forgot my wallet, but I happen to have some cash in my pocket. That's what I was going to use. So I pull the cash out. Instead of figuring out which to get, I just was like, whatever I have, you can have. Here's the, here's the money. I remember it was $14. The guy starts to walk away. And the second he walks away, the clerk comes back to the window and says, that'll be $250. And then I go, hey, wait a second. Give me 250 back so I can get this pot. <laughs> then the guy looks at me and says, I kind of got a lot of stuff I need to buy, and uh, I don't really, I, I, you don't understand where I'm kind of like, come on. I just gave you four, give us $2.50. I promise you, he gave me 250 in nickels and dimes that were scattered around. It took five. I'm like, just give me the money. It's. I shouldn't pick on him. He's in a hard spot in life. And I wouldn't say he has a bad eye. Might have cross eye or something, but I. <laughs> if. Jesus is right here, and we have a bad eye. This can lead to an infection in our entire body. He compares it to darkness filling up your body. And I think it's true. If we live stingily and have this bad eye mentality, it will start to influence how we see everybody, 
how you see the people who are closest to you will become a, a way of measuring out who is better, who's worse. And I promise you, as you start to keep score with your spouse or your friends, you will always be in the lead. They will never be able to surpass your acts of charity and righteousness or your act of love for them. And it'll start to become this stingy type thing. This will also affect and be projected on God. How do we view God as we become more and more full of, of this stinginess? God becomes petty. And everything that we do wrong, every single little thing becomes um, an act uh, of condemnation upon ourselves, as well as everything that we do right. Then we start becoming people who are, are acting in such a way like everything that we do, we get some sort of credit or some sort of uh, blessing in return of all the stuff that we start remembering. You remember, Lord, I did all of these things for you? You owe me. How dare you not give me this? We use verses like to store up for yourself treasure in heaven as a way of thinking of a bank account, of an investment that we're making somewhere in the sky through all of the Christian acts that we do. Surely this is not what this means. We uh, just don't store up treasure on earth and that somehow just the act of not doing something somehow gets uh, cr gives us credit in the age to come or that will become a legalistic game in a second which Nietzsche this is one of his big critiques of Christianity once we start living like this it becomes a legalistic game that condemns people who don't do the same thing we do and 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 then the people who are wealthy and are rich become uh, condemned and and we say, oh, well, I'll get mine in the age to come. You'll get yours here. You'll get nothing. And then it becomes this way of getting revenge against people who have from the people who have not. That is full of stingy, petty theology. We need to track down how money is influencing our faith. It's a devastating, turbulent force. Splits up marriages, splits up friendships, splits up churches. Encourages people to uh, get this bad, tons of bad theological ideas, even the ones that I've already described, as well as some that have devastated full-on countries. I mean, the health and wealth and prosperity type of ideas uh, are, are there to prop up certain individuals who want to get more treasure on earth and it just can get so weird and so wrong. But at the same time, we have to figure out what to do with money because for better or for worse or richer or for poorer, we have to interact with money for the rest of our lives. So what does it mean to not be stingy and to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven? Well, aside from what I already described, I thought growing up that this is what it was, which was just a way to store up an investment in the age to come. I started to dig into it a little bit this week and found that there's another proverb that has influenced the thinking of this, uh, this expression. Proverbs 19.17, which says, he who shares with the poor borrows to God and God will repay 
He who gives to the poor lends to God. To lend to God then started to become a way of speaking, to store up, and especially in the book of Matthew that doesn't even use the word God very often because it's designed to be read by Jewish people. Heaven is another way of saying God. To store up, to lend to heaven is directly connected with giving to the poor. I have found some specific sources in the intertestamental writings that are uh, preserved in the Catholic Bible of the book of Tobit and Sirach that use this same proverb and the same language to describe uh, storing up in the age to come and giving to the poor. I was uh, shocked to see even in rabbinic literature there was uh, several mentions of this same thing. I'm thinking of this story where there's a king who was a king in Iraq of a small uh, country, and he, had a, he became Jewish. And by the time uh, of like the first century, there's a famine, which you can, I think, connect to the famine of Acts 11. And during that famine, he supplied Israel with a, a ton of resource. Um, here's a quote that uh, I have that w- shows the heat that he got from his family for this. An event in which King Munbaz, the king, went to and squandered his treasures during the years of famine. His brother sent a letter to him saying, your ancestors saved treasure and added to those of their ancestors. But you went and gave away all of your treasure, yours and that of your ancestors. He said to them, my ancestors saved treasures below, but I have saved treasures above. My ancestors saved treasure in this world, but I have saved treasure for myself in the world to come. Five times this phrase is used in the New Testament. Once it's used here uh, in in Luke 12, I, I also can show you that. Fear not, little flock. It is to your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possession, give alms to the poor. Provide for yourself bags that do not grow old and a treasure in heaven that does not wither. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The three other times that this is used in the New Testament is in one specific story in three different of the Gospels. The story we call the rich young ruler. If you aren't familiar with the story, you can find it in Matthew 19, where this young man comes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He has all the right answers. He knows what to say. You know, I've been from my youth, I've been doing all the Ten Commandments and I've I've got this pretty much sorted out, but I'm still missing something. And Jesus says, you're right. There's one thing that you lack. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and you will store it for yourself treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. This phrase, treasure in heaven, is always connected to giving money away to the poor. So my question is, how do we become the type of person who is described in the parable of the person who finds the treasure in the field, who is willing to look at everything else as a means to an end, who's willing to, to sell all the other stuff, to just be participating in, in whatever's going on with this treasure, and not have the fatal flaw of the rich young ruler who saw everything that he had as too valuable to give up. His fatal flaw was that he thought you could follow Christ and it wouldn't cost you anything. Indeed, 
It is free to become a child of God. But it will cost, it is costly to receive this grace. And how many of us are going to maybe be tempted to walk out of here and think, you know what? I actually can do both. I can have everything that I want in this world and have it all, all the comforts and all of the uh, wealth and all of the money and all of the plans and all of the control. And over here, I can also have all of my beliefs and opinions and love for God at the same time. But there is a very definitive statement in this passage where Jesus says in verse 24, you can't do both. You can't, there's not enough room on the throne in your heart for the idol and for Jesus. This is why the rich young ruler walked away sad. He was unable to give it up. How do we have our treasure, where our heart in the right place? How do we store up treasures in heaven? Is is that we care about the things God cares about, and He cares about the oppressed. He cares about the widow and the orphan. He cares about the poor. He cares about you and I, people who were lost and helpless. And He said, "I'm going to give everything that I have in order to save you." There's a lot of confusion in this world about how God looks at us and what God would do for us. Uh, and, and does he love us or not? And how will they know that we serve a God who, though he was rich, became poor for our sake? If we're not willing to give a little, how will, will they know that he paid our debt if we're unwilling to pay anyone else's debt, if we're unwilling to forgive any other debt, if we're unwilling to, uh, to give to the poor? How will they know that he left his place of status and comfort and didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but left it because he saw the treasure in the field. Our call is to pick up our cross and follow Christ. And he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. And in that act of self-sacrifice, will be a taste of resurrection. We'll start to sound like people, like the Apostle Paul who said, everything that I once considered gain, I now consider loss, just so that I might know just a glimpse of the resurrection of Christ. Is Jesus asking, calling you to do something self-sacrificial for your neighbor? Have you been saying no to, to Christ's call to store up your self-treasure by, 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 by giving to, to somebody who's in need. Could be money, could be time. He will call us to do this. And it's gonna cost, it's gonna hurt. And mark my words, it will be scary. He calls us to step outside the boat onto this, uh, you know, into the water during the storm. It's gonna be scary. He's going to call you to take another step after that. As soon as you think you got to figure it out, he's going to call you to another step after that. Which is why I'm glad that verse 25, what, oh, why I'm glad verse 25, uh, sorry, uh, is here. Because Jesus knows that it's going to be scary. He knows better than to see people walking a tightrope and just say, hey, don't look down. 
He knows that nobody who, who you just say, hey, don't worry about something, just says, okay, I'm not going to worry. <laughs> when we're afraid to do the thing that we're called to do, Jesus appeals to uh, something that I find quite compelling. He says, look at the birds. Look at the flowers. I love talking about this because it's just so compelling to me to see the invisible qualities of God revealed in creation. And every time you hear a bird chirp from now on, it's, it's probably gonna wreck it for you. Um, <laughs> but just simply put, there's something that God designed and created, living its life exactly how it was supposed to be. And when it's doing that, Jesus says, do you think that it doing what it's supposed to be doing, that God's not going to take care of its needs? In essence, if you're called to do something, God's designed for you to do, do you think that God doesn't know what, what it's gonna require of you, what it's, going to, what it's gonna take, what it's gonna cost? Do, you, do we think that we can somehow, by following God, outgive God, outthink God? Who told you? What voice in the back of your mind says, yeah, but what about this detail and this responsibility and this bill and this thing that I have to do? Though those things are real and though the chemicals are going off in our bodies and telling us, be afraid, and this isn't gonna work out, my question is, if God is calling you to do something that he specifically designed you to do, do you think that he's going to meet you in your need when you're there? He does it for the fields. And every time you see the vibrant, symmetric, beautiful color of a flower popping out of the field, it's screaming at you. Every time we hear a bird sing, it's mocking our fear, saying that God will take care of you, bearer of the image of God, bearer of the uh, message of the gospel, person who has all the reputation of Jesus Christ laid on your shoulders. Now he is going to equip you and give you what you need in your time uh, of need. What do you have to fear? And who told you to be afraid? Listen to the bird. This morning we like to take some time and uh, give you opportunity to pray and to take communion. It doesn't have to be super complicated. Um, everybody here is welcome to participate in communion. And Jesus, instead of having a big, long uh, way of explaining what he means to the world, uh, decided to just share a meal and to put it in, in, in the food. And he said, if you eat this bread and you drink this wine, this will represent the length that I'm willing to go to rescue you. My body is broken, my blood is shed to save you. And so I welcome you to come and eat this morning. If any of you are feeling like your life has gone the way of the bad eye and you've been stingy and you feel like you want to know the unlimited love that God has for you, if you want to know the generous and benevolent love of God and continue for that to be a central place in your life, then come and eat. If you feel like this morning that you have just had your heart in the wrong place and you've been treasuring things like uh, physical wellness or, 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 your, or your health or your body, or if you've been treasuring things like status or control or your future, and you want to say, my treasure's been the wrong thing, help me to put my heart in the right place. 
Come and orient yourself at the foot of the cross and eat. If any of you feel like you've just been full of fear and there's been just inside of you a voice telling you, uh, do not do what God wants you to do. Do not follow the call. Then I just would encourage you to say, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I'm going to trust your body. I'm going to trust your blood. Take care of my need. Satisfy my deepest spiritual need and let that inform all, all of what else wouldn't you do for me. Let's just take a moment and pray. Father in heaven, all these things uh, we commend to you. And I'm reminded of the psalm, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? I lift my eyes to the hills and see the promise of Baal, Asherah, the high places where the idols say, trust me, come sacrifice to me and I'll give you your heart's desire. I lift my eyes to the hills and I say, forget the idols. Where does my true help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The one who holds me in his hand, he's able to sustain me. The one who gave his life for me to have life. He watches over Israel. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He will protect you. Where does my help come from? It comes from you. I say that publicly and I say that personally. Please help that to be um, first and foremost reality for the lives of people here in my community. Amen.